This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to Coronacast, a podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 16th of February 2021. That's right. And yesterday we marked a really significant milestone in the weird coronavirus pandemic year that we've been having, Norman. The first doses of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine, which has been approved for use by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, touched down in Australia, ready to start rolling them out next week to the high priority groups. So a big milestone. What does the next phase actually look like, though, the rollout? Well, I think a lot of it's been left to the states. I suspect that what you'll see is remarkable uniformity, which is the first line of defence and the first line of people who are most vulnerable, as we've seen again and again and again, are people who are working on our borders, driving buses, transporting people from the airport and working in hotels, looking after people who've just arrived. So those are the people who will be immunised first, I, I would imagine, right around the country. That will protect them. They will get the Pfizer vaccine mostly, which is good because that gives the most chance of reducing transmission if they do get infected, as well as protecting them against disease. Um, And then it's aged care and high-priority healthcare workers, so frontline healthcare workers. That's that first phase. And uh, we haven't heard too much of exactly who's going to do what where in terms of administering vaccines. I know that a lot of general practices have volunteered and we do have a good network of general practices, so it should be okay. But I'm getting anecdotal feedback from various parts of Australia saying they're really, from people in the business, if you like, who are saying they're really not sure what the plans are. Um, So I think it's still a work in progress. But the first phase should go okay, one would hope. And then there's a process of where the Commonwealth's taking responsibility for aged care and getting enough doses out into aged care, which are our most vulnerable communities, should the vaccine escape into the general community. Right. One of the questions that we're getting a lot of from people, um, from audience members, is will we be notified when it's when it's our turn? But we don't know that yet. Yes, I'm not sure how that's how that is indeed going to work. But I assume that there are ways through Medicare numbers and other means that the government can, you know, tax file number. I, I don't know, but I assume there are ways of finding out who you are and what you've got and assume that also that your general practitioner can help out too. But I think those are the sorts of things that are not entirely clear how people will be identified individually. So the scale of vaccinating an entire country, even one with a relatively small population like Australia, is a massive ask. So we heard last week World Health Organisation expert advisor from the University of New South Wales, Mary Louise McLaws, saying that we're going to need to vaccinate something like 190,000 people per day to get to the targets that have been set for October this year. Is that going to be feasible? Well, low to middle income countries do mass vaccination programs, not all the time, but they do it frequently. In fact, some some would say that they're better equipped than many advanced countries, richer countries, to do this. And when they've had a rabies outbreak, they get through extraordinary numbers very quickly. And and so you can get large venues with nurses, factory-like processes, com- you know, logistics simplified down so that it's all there, and people head for mass vaccination areas. You can actually get through very large numbers very quickly if you need to. You know, so those numbers are not impossible, but they are hard to achieve. And it's going to take a ramp up. So we're going to start off slow and then ramp up from there. The, I think the rate limiting step is actually going to be the supply of vaccines. Are we going to have 700,000 doses available a week? And it's going to take us a while to get to that point. So I think that's the issue rather than can we administer those vaccines. 
I mean, interestingly, we do 50 to 60,000 COVID tests a day nationally at the moment. Perhaps uh, a similar framework could be used to roll out the vaccines? Yeah, well, I think they are thinking of respiratory clinics, the, that model being used as well with the drive-through with the general, you know, with general practitioners, which was very useful, as well as public hospitals providing those sort of drive-through facilities as well. You, you can get through very large numbers. You've just got to have a queue of people ready to get it. You've got to have the supply. You've got to have the cold chain. And you've got to be computerised so that you can enter people's names into the register. And you've got to have somewhere where you can keep them for 15 minutes and observe them with resuscitation facilities. So it's not as simple as doing the test. That's right. So we're talking about the Pfizer vaccine at the moment. There have been cases overseas where in places that that's rolled out that people have had anaphylactic reactions to it. Do we know how likely it is that we might see some of those reactions happening in Australia? Well, people with anaphylaxis should discuss this with their doctor. The risk is low. Um, so this study was of um, through to from December 14th through to January 18th, a total of nearly 10 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and uh, 7.5 million doses of the Moderna vaccine. There were 47 cases of anaphylaxis, according to a standard definition from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. That's in 10 million people. That's a rate of about 4.7 cases per million doses administered. And there were 19 people who developed an anaphylactic reaction to the Moderna vaccine because the Moderna vaccine has the similar component. And that's about a reported rate of 2.5 cases per million. So this is rare. As far as I'm aware, nobody has died of the anaphylaxis, although some people have got quite sick. So if you've had anaphylaxis, you really do need to report it so they can watch you closely. So the message here is you do need to consult the Commonwealth Government's website on vaccines about the current advice if you've had anaphylaxis. It's also whether or not you've just had a mild allergic reaction to something or other rather than a true anaphylactic reaction. There's um, a lot of people, for example, who think, just to take an example, they're allergic to penicillin. And it turns out with research, they're actually not. They've had some other kind of reaction or it's not been a true allergic reaction. So you wouldn't want to miss out on the COVID-19 vaccine if you haven't had true anaphylaxis. So this is something to talk over with your GP, look at the government advice, the TGA advice at any one period of time and, uh, and follow that. So, of course, this is the Pfizer vaccine, but of course, the vaccine that most Australians are going to get is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a lot of those doses are going to be manufactured here in Australia. And our colleague, Belinda Smith, went and visited the CSL labs in Melbourne where that is going to happen. And she talked us through that process on the health report, which you can also find wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's a fascinating process. They kind of get this, like they get the ingredients from Astra and then they cook the ingredients up into vast amounts for the vaccine. Yeah, such a such an incredibly interesting insight and I could really see the facility in my mind when she was explaining it. Yeah, it was great. So yesterday, Norman, we were talking about whether Melbourne's five-day lockdown was enough and it sounds like things are starting to settle down there. So are we, are we likely to see things open up in Melbourne on Thursday? I think the government is obviously leery about making too many firm commitments because you just don't know what's around the corner. But it does look as though it's under control. The contact tracers are doing great work and I suspect there's no good reason to keep it going beyond Wednesday, but we'll see. And whenever we're talking about an outbreak, we're always worried about the risk of a super spreading event. And there's some new research that sheds just a little bit more light on why some people tend to spread the virus more than others. Yeah, it creates as many questions almost as answers. They looked at non-human primates and they also looked at humans and the extent to which they shed virus. 
And what they found was that the younger you were and the thinner you were, the less likely you were to shed, you know, to be a spreader. And the older you were, the conversely, obviously, the colder you were and the higher your BMI, your body mass index, the more likely you were to spread respiratory infections. Now, they don't really understand fully why that was the case, but what they think might be happening is that as you age, but also as your BMI goes up, the mucus lining your lungs changes and may be more conducive to a virus or a bacterium growing there and therefore to spread. So there is a notion that such people may be more likely to spread, whether they're super spreaders or not is another matter. But what we've also seen in the coronavirus pandemic is that it's almost certainly just as much the fact that you go into a super spreading environment, a, a restaurant, a poorly ventilated area, a hotel where you've got positive pressure going out into the corridor and so on. And while we're speaking about research, there's another paper out of Canada that really puts paid to this idea that coronavirus is just a bad flu in terms of death rates. Yeah, they show that the COVID-19 deaths are three and a half times higher than influenza. We on Coronacast have talked you know, over the last year between six and ten times. It really depends on where you've been treated. There's recent uh, studies out of the United States showing that the uh, if you are in a poor area with an overburdened hospital, the death rates can be really, really high. The rate of death is really hard to calculate. It's how much testing you're doing, it's where you're being treated, whether you get access to evidence-based care and so on. So it's a really difficult one, but there's no question that it's higher. And in fact, yesterday on local radio in Western Australia, I had a kind of argument with uh, a polite one with a, a listener calling in saying, well, if it's only one, you know, the overall death rate's one or 3%, you know, that's not a problem. It's not a high mortality rate. And the point we just must never forget is that, and where it takes us right back to February, March of last year, at the beginning of CoronaCast, is that if you get hundreds of thousands of people infected, 1% is a lot. One death is a lot that doesn't need to happen. It's preventable and it's high numbers when you've got high numbers infected. And has been seen recently as older people isolate and don't go out into the community. And with these new variants, there's a tendency for younger people to be infected. And there's, a, you know, it's younger people who are starting to die in large numbers in places like the UK and the US, even though those numbers are tailing off, luckily. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. But if you'd like to leave us a review, please do on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to send in your questions and comments. They're flooding in at abc.net.au slash coronacast and mention coronacasts on the way through and we'll pick them up and try and answer them. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. 